Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. We have a very special guest. He comes to us from Texas. His name is Richard Bartholomew. He published a book, 2018. Title of it is The Deep State in the Heart of Texas, The Texas Connections to the Kennedy Assassination. And we are recording this the day before November 22nd. So it'll be the 59th year anniversary. And a really interesting book and comes uh, analyzes a lot of things that happened around the assassination from his home state in Texas. And he knows a lot of the local information. A lot of names popped up that I hadn't heard before, some that I had. But he definitely has some specialized knowledge about the assassination and has been researching for quite some time. So I'm delighted to have him. So Richard Bartholomew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on, William. It's a pleasure Great, so to be on for the anniversary. Yeah, excellent. Well, thanks for agreeing. People who may not have heard your name, I know you were on the Opperman Report. We talked about that. You've been on a few other shows, one I hadn't heard of, Out of the Blank. But can you kind of talk about your background? I know that you are right there in the middle of things. Maybe you can just talk about how you got interested in the assassination of JFK. Well, you know, just my luck, I was born in Dallas. Not only born in Dallas in 1956, so I was seven at the time of the assassination. I was born in South Oak Cliff, Dallas. Um, I mentioned, I have a little essay at, as an introduction to my book called My Small World of JFK Conspiracy. And I start right out saying that I was, uh, our house, when I was born, our first house was 2431 Britain in South Oak Cliff, Britain Drive. And it was, you know, when I started researching and when the internet started get going strong and we finally could have maps online i decided to do a, a search of uh, my address there and other significant addresses and i was amazed to find that um, there was a safe house uh just a few blocks south of us uh at 3126 harlandale avenue um, a lot of researchers will recognize that address. Um, that is where uh, a team of uh, Operation 40 CIA assassins were uh, housed. It was a CIA state house. A week before the assassination, they uh, departed the house. <laughs> I think just like a day or two before. And, um, you know, Operation 40, you know, connected to ZR Rifle, the CIA attempts to assassinate Castro and involved in other foreign assassinations that we learned about from the church committee in 1975. Um, and there they were, uh, you know, a 20 minute walk south of where I was born. Um, 1026 North Beckley, uh, two or three miles uh, Northeast of where I was. So I was in the milieu of the conspiracy as an infant. Um, then we moved to uh, Mesquite in 1960. Kennedy is elected. Um, Cuban, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis. One of my first memories in life. Aside from the 1959 Dallas tornado, that's actually my first memory. I was only three. But you get you, you can have flash memories like that at that age. And I have a memory of seeing that tornado, which 
went along Stemmons Freeway, which you could see on the horizon north of us, uh, from our front porch. So I was having memories uh, of the Kennedy administration. Kennedy was the first president I was aware of. I was born during Eisenhower, but I uh, wasn't old enough to be aware of a president until Kennedy. And uh, of course, at that age, you see a president as a father figure. Kennedy was a superstar, charisma, everything. So it's a great first president to know. Um, everybody around me liked the guy. So it tells you I wasn't in some like, uh, far right wing neighborhoods or amongst those people. But, um, you know, my sense of Kennedy was that he was a, a, a great guy, a great president. And everybody liked him. Um, then my first memory uh, or, you know, world geopolitical memory was the Cuban Missile Crisis, because how could you not you know, be aware of that when it happened? Everybody was scared to death. I remember seeing his Kennedy's speech, October 22nd, 1962, um, and the reactions of the adults. So a year later, the Kennedy assassination, and man, you know, I still have very clear memories of that. I much later realized when I started doing my research, it hit me that that was the defining moment of my life. Uh, I'd always been interested in it after that, uh, but not, you know, seriously. You grow up, you know, having all kinds of other things to learn and do, school and everything, and dating and all of it. But, um, when I started my research um, and started finding all of my personal connections to the conspiracy, I, uh, I realized that even as a kid, after the assassination, the whole spy craze, well, it already started with the James Bond series, um, but then TV and everything, it was the, the 60s spy craze in media. And um, so I gravitated to that, but my, I, I told, parents you know they asked what do you want to be when you grow up i would say a secret service agent i didn't say fireman cowboy policeman i said secret service agent that's how much in effect i didn't at the time but looking back on it i wanted to be a secret service agent because to protect the president you see so it hit me that that was the defining moment and that you know led me eventually uh, psychologically deep down that led me to my research. There are other specific events that occurred that got me into serious uh, daily research on it in 1988. But um, that's, that's uh, Right, so you're know, researching Oak Cliff is really, Oak Cliff is kind of the eastern part of Dallas metropolitan southern. area. It's the southern, southern it was the first big it was the first uh, suburb of Dallas, south of oh. downtown. Okay, uh, not very far, only like a, a mile or two south of downtown. So um, you're fairly close to Dealey Plaza, where everything went down, right? Uh, I well, even even when we moved to Mesquite, which is um, a southeastern uh, suburb of Dallas, um, where we were during the assassination, we were only 13 miles. I, I tracked that on uh, Google Maps, 13 miles. My elementary school was only like a block away. Uh, and 
that's where I was. I, you know, that's my memory of that day. Second grade classroom. Our principal had been there at the motorcade, uh, not in Dealey Plaza, but my first awareness of the event was my, our principal got on the PA and announced to the teachers and the students at the same time that the president had been shot and she was going to dismiss, we had a female principal, dismiss school for the day. My teacher broke down in tears, Mrs. Price, and she dismissed us by waving her hands. And uh, I walked out of the classroom seeing her break down in tears at her desk. Uh, that's a strong memory. I walk out, I connect up with my uh, older brother uh, and we start walking home. We're only like a block away. But then as, as we leave the school grounds, my mom comes driving up in our car along the curb and says, get in this car. I won't have you walking the streets when we don't have a president. That's a very strong memory. And then it's home and in front of the TV, all the events that happened after that, I did not see uh, Oswald get shot. A lot of people saw that live on TV. Uh, I don't know why I didn't, but I did. Uh, probably better for me that I didn't. Uh, but the whole weekend, all the coverage, trying to comprehend it as a seven-year-old, um, taking cues from the adults around me. And then the funeral on Monday, the funeral, very vivid memories of that. Um, and, and the saturation, the listeners, was something like over 90% of all TVs in the U.S. were on yeah. watching everything. So it was really it, a huge media it, aspect of it was huge. Yeah, yeah. So I spent the rest of my life putting that weekend in context, basically. Or leaning towards getting to doing that. I didn't get serious until 1988. And then in 1989, I stumbled across what appeared to be new evidence that I tried to ignore but couldn't. And it took me a, a year to really get serious about looking into that. So we can talk about that. Yeah. So you kind of, at what point did you kind of feel like there was more to the story and there was that the, the cover narrative wasn't the full story? Well, you know, um, it happened pretty quickly, actually. You know, if you go back and read the newspapers of the time, uh, they're reporting conspiratorial stuff. You know, the uh, the lid didn't close on that until the Warren report was issued in late September of 64. Um, that's when <laughs> it was you were hard pressed. Only the alternative media, only the, the upstarts and the people who saw who saw the truth. But even then, their stuff would get published in obscure areas by that time. However, from the day of the assassination to that next year, or until the FBI and the Warren Commission let it be known to the media that this is, was going to be their conclusion, that's when things started shutting down. But you had things like, um, I mean, the most amazing things would show up that weekend. Uh, that Saturday, I, I've talked about. Uh, there was a re there was a news story that I now have a copy of it that uh, there was a kid that was a, a young man. Uh, he's described as the boy in the newspaper article from that Saturday, the 23rd of November. 
um, at Main and Haskell Street, just uh, a few blocks before they get to Houston and make the turn down to Dealey Plaza. Uh, this guy starts chasing the motorcade and he's shouting to sl slow down. He's shouting to the president, slow down. Uh, uh, and a lot of people witnessed this uh, slow down, stop. Not in the sense that he wanted to catch up and say hi to the president. It wasn't an innocent kind of thing. It was described as a warning. He was trying to warn uh, the president. So what happens? Secret Service man, we know his name. I can't remember him right now, but jumps off the, the, the follow-up car where the Secret Service men were, tackles the guy, throws him to the pavement at the curb. People witnessed this. That's how we know it, it was in the news story. And uh, people were amazed that the guy even got up. He got up and disappeared and disappeared from history at that point. Um, Secret Service man gets back on the follow-up car, and we never hear any more about it. But the guy got um, be a good time travel story. Maybe it was. It seems like there were people who knew, or there was a foreshadowing of the event. Right? Isn't uh, people. Well, the people who got I mean, kicked out of the car. Yeah, so there were people. Yeah, there were people who knew. I mean, lots of stories about foreknowledge. So it, it sounds like a foreknowledge kind of thing. Maybe he was the son of somebody who knew. You had you had things like that. I was tracking things like that. The advantage of knowing about this in detail uh, is that by nine eleven, I was tracking stuff like that that was coming through the media. You know, I always did that after I became aware of how much stuff you can learn in the first day or first couple of days of a major event like that. And there were things like that popping up after 9-11. In Garland, Texas, where the, the place where, you know, just north of Mesquite, we had moved to Garland, Texas in 65. And um, I went to Garland High School. Uh, one of the witnesses, uh, to the assassination, Beverly Oliver, known as the Babushka lady, um, had graduated from Garland High School 10 years before me. Lots of, lots of names and addresses from Garland show up in the Warren Report, as do Mesquite and South Oak Cliff. So I'm reading the Warren Commission volumes and I'm seeing all of this around me. I was just immersed in it. Um, and, um, so, uh, and then, like I was saying, just as a footnote, uh, there were Garland, Texas connections to these, this foreknowledge, foreknowledge of 9-11 stories appearing in the news. Uh, by this time, they're showing up on the internet. So, uh, you know, it's a, it's a wild, a wild. I, I tell, when I meet somebody my age, I, I, first thing I say is, and it's been a, a wild journey, hasn't it? Right. It certainly has. And that story kind of unraveled, too. So it, I remember, I think, reading that some people had the grassy knoll and there was a front shot. And then the story started twisting and all the stories about uh, Oswald. Oh, yeah. So, so I was headed. You were asking me about uh, early on knowledge of it. Oh, uh, my mom was always tracking the news closely is where I got my interest in follow the news eventually became a political cartoonist because of that. 
uh, had an art talent, which was discovered by my second grade teacher. And she had a discussion with my mom. And after that, it was all art lessons in art school. And I always knew what I was going to be. I still wanted to be a Secret Service agent, but I, <laughs> I knew what I was going to be. I never had that angst of not knowing what I was going to be when I grew up. But um, she followed the news and, and she would talk. She would talk to us about in December, uh, I believe it was in December of 63, was when the uh, Secret Service visited the Parkland Hospital doctors who had attended Kennedy uh, in the emergency room. And after that, the, the doctors shut up. They didn't talk anymore about it. They didn't talk about where the bullet wounds were. They, you know, they, and they basically, after that, they either didn't say anything or they agreed with what became the official story of shots from behind. That was not the case before that. The doctors were saying, you know, exit wound in the back, entrance room wound. In yeah, there's, the like a, there's like a news thing where the guy's literally pointing things at that have not all changed. Yeah. At the news conference. So, yeah, you were getting truthful stuff. And then the the deep state, I'll use the term I used on my on my book, the deep state moves in, starts uh, forming the narrative and shutting people up and even killing people. Uh, the, the witnesses, uh, people want to know, if you're new to this, you really want to know about the story of the... The dead witnesses, uh, Richard Belzer, the uh, famous comedian and actor from Law and Order, he uh, wrote a book. He's he's been one of these guys that became a researcher of it um, outside of his day job, which was acting and comedy. Um, and he wrote a book. Uh, the name of it skips me right now, but it's the and it's the latest book. Something list, something list like the the, the death, list. death list, yeah, or something like that. And he brings it all up today, you know, the, the statistics, which were bandied back and forth and all this, but he makes uh, the case, the modern case for the um, just uh, unbelievable number of witnesses that statistically shouldn't have been, but was, which is why we know that they were murdered because they had either talked or threatened to talk or had witnessed something they shouldn't have. Reporters, even. There were a couple of reporters who were, uh, you know, everybody knew Jack Ruby. If you were in downtown Dallas in sixty in the early 60s, you knew Jack Ruby. Um, I was told that uh, by my wife's uncle. We'll get into that, I guess, in a little bit. But... Um, he worked in downtown Dallas. He, I'll go ahead and say it. He was Abraham Zapruder's business partner, my wife's uncle, um, her mother's brother. Uh, my wife's grandfather was Abraham um, Schwartz. Um, the uncle was Erwin Schwartz. Really in-depth researchers on the Zapruder film will recognize these names. Abraham Schwartz was uh, Zapruder's business partner. He died in 1956, and then Uncle Irwin took over and was Abe's Mr. Zapruder, Mr. Z, uh, Mr. Z's business partner at Jennifer Jr.'s, their dressmaking uh, business, 
which was located at 501 Elm Street, um, commonly known as the Daltex building, but Irwin told me that they don't, they didn't call it that. That was, that's one of those terms like the grassy knoll that nobody called it that at the time. Uh, you'll even see in the initial first day interviews with witnesses, they didn't call it the grassy knoll, they called it that grassy area or the, the hillside. Building, it wasn't referred to that back then. It, it probably was some kind of name used somewhere, but it was, they all called it 501 Elm Street. And Zapruder uh, uh, was on the fourth, yeah, fourth floor. Um, had their factory up there. So and, that's why uh, he was on site there for that day, right? Because he worked there, he literally. Well, worked. now Irwin, Irwin had gone out to lunch. He was up on Northwest Highway at the Royal Coach Inn, having lunch. I interviewed Irwin, by the way, when I was doing my research. Well, even before then, uh, I got married in 1985. We had uh, dated for three years up until that point, my wife and I, and uh, it was like that first year we were dating, first few months actually that. Uh, I learned that she was the niece of Erwin Schwartz, Saves a Pruder's business partner. Every Thanksgiving after that, uh, at their house, I would sit with, uh, I would find time to sit with Erwin. No, nobody in, in a family that was that close to the events and affected like that by it, but it's common that they, they, were, they avoided the issue. It was traumatic. You know, people you know were affected badly by it. I see that when I talk to people in similar situations, even later generations. The, the, and you see that in wartime, too, in World War II families. They, they don't want to talk about it. Um, except one family member. That was Erwin Schwartz, because he had been so close to the event. He, had, he, he came back from lunch because he heard, they, they heard about it while they were at lunch. And uh, he rushed back to the office. And um, Mr. Z was was just beside himself. He was in shock still. So Irwin stayed with him the rest of that day and was with him for the whole processing of the famous film at every point in the processing of that film. And so at Thanksgiving, I would sit Irwin down and he was glad to talk to me. He was glad that I was interested. He would tell me his story. And then uh, at one point in 1994, I think it was, um, uh, a reader from California was at a conference. We were at, we would go to the JFK conferences when they started in 1991. And uh, he said, do you think Erwin uh, uh, would submit to a, a recorded interview? I said, I don't know, let's call him. So we called him from the hotel where the conference was. And he said, yeah, he'd, uh, buy me lunch at my favorite restaurant and uh, bring the tape recorder and we'll do it. That's what we did. We, we left the conference and we, we went to Vincent's um, um, seafood restaurant um, in Dallas. Got a, a round, big round table. I set up the recorder and uh, Noel Twyman was the, he wrote the book, um, Bloody Treason. Noel Twyman, um, I, 
ask the questions. I would jump in with, with follow-up questions. I, I ran the tape recorder. And uh, you can read, uh, he did the, the published version of that interview. I have detailed notes, which, you know, how when you do an interview, you're having a conversation, which you know well, because you do the transcripts of these. Conversation is not like a readable thing, usually. So I, I just converted the word for word into, a, uh, you know, actual sentences and paragraphs. But it's every everything that was said in the order that it was said. And I have those detailed notes um, digitized. And I, I sent them to researchers who want them. Just email me and I'll send you a copy of that, the transcript of, my, of our interview with Erwin Schwartz. What we learned from Irwin in that interview, uh, you know, this gets into uh, subjects you may not want to get into yet, but or we may not be able to get into. But what we learned from Irwin is that there was a there was a shell game involving the Zapruder film early on that that during the processing, uh, where easily, you know, they tried to restrict how many copies were made of it. Abe Zapruder was a businessman after all, and so was Irwin. And so they they signed they they drew up releases right there on the spot and had people sign them and said, you know, we only want three copies, blah, blah, blah. But Irwin made made it clear to me that, you know, they did all that, but w- once they were in the back making the copies of the film, they didn't go back there and observe it. Anything could have happened. So you look at the that history early on at the Zapruder film. And yeah, you see there was a shell game. Result being, there are copies. This is my firm conclusion uh, in everything I've researched about the Zapruder There's an essay. I've only written one essay about the Zapruder film. It's in my book. It's short, but it's powerful. Um, there are copies of the actual Zapruder film, the unaltered I am, I am in the school of Zapruder film was altered. There are people who aren't. I'm in the school where this says it was altered. I think that's what the evidence shows. Um, but there are unaltered copies that were, I call them uh, first day um, bootleg copies, first day copies of the Zapruder film um, that were made. There were the official ones that were made. Those are exist somewhere. And uh, bootleg copies that were made, and those exist somewhere. There are about six researchers over the years who have come out and told the story about how they saw a different Zapruder film. William Raymond in France is one of them. Millicent Craner, who uh, works at Russ Baker's whowhatwhy.com. Millicent Craner has a story, and she wrote extensively about the altered Zapruder film early on, and that inspired me to write my essay. But there are, and someday I think we're going to see, I think we are going to see the original Zapruder film. It is possible, and I think it's going to happen. What do you think they took out of it? Say again? What do you think they took out of it? Why was it edited? Oh, I can can tell you all about my essay. It's only like a, a three or four page essay, short, but it gets right to the point. It's about one frame of the film. I decided to, in my in my writing, even though it's it's long and some of it's complicated. Later on, I tried to keep things short, which I did in that Zapruder film essay. Um, 
it uh, it goes into one frame. I concentrated on one frame of film, frame two two seven, which is a very bizarre thing. Uh, it was first mentioned by Josiah Thompson in Six Seconds in Dallas, his book from nineteen sixty six sixty seven, and uh, he talks about that frame. It's a strange frame. Uh, there's a blurring effect to it, as if the cam there was camera motion. But uh, as physicist Louis Alvarez told Josiah Thompson, uh, this is not what when you move a camera. This is these is not these are not the lines that would occur. The background is still there. Are no move? There's no movement blurring in the background. Yet there's blurring on the limousine in a in a what was it? Uh, it's a like a two o'clock, eight o'clock direction. Those are all consistent in the in the mid ground, um, and of course the camera is shaking around, but that was to the advantage of the people altering it. So my my analysis came to this conclusion: what? And it was not that hard to find out when you looked at the testimony. Zapruder was looking for certain things in the film with, during his Warren Commission testimony, and you can read his testimony. Millicent Craner discovered that. Uh, and you can see he was looking for this motion that he, he said uh, after the first shot, Kennedy, or, or at the time of the first shot, Kennedy grabbed his chest as if joking, oh, they got me, and then went forward. You don't see that in the film. I discovered that that's the exact same moment that this weird 227 blur happens. And uh, right after that, Connolly reacts to something. But Connolly, you look at Connolly's first interview in the hospital, like a week after the assassination, and it's on film. And it, it was even shown on Nova, but they cut out the crucial part, censoring it. Uh, the esteemed Nova science series on PBS, when they do the, when they do the Kennedy assassination, they throw science out the window and they, they throw ethics out the window. That's the way the whole thing works. You can say all you want to about astronomy and anthropology and, and physics and everything else. But when it comes to politics, deep politics, you, uh, you omit things. And that's what they, they cut. Millicent Craner wrote about that as well early on. And that inspired me to look into it more deeply. So Con the, the basic thing, Conley says that he was facing forward. He heard the first shot. He always said he was not hit by the first shot because he heard the first shot. And he, he glanced to his right. Then he turned straight forward and then continued to turn to his left until he was all the way, positioned his body all the way back, looking straight at Kennedy. He wanted to see Kennedy. Kennedy's reacting from the shot. And then he said, and at that point, facing Kennedy is when he was shot. Now, let me mimic that for you. Here he is, looks to the right, comes back around. Look at what you have to do to turn around all the way to the back. Now, you notice where my leg, well, you can't see my leg, but my arm I don't talk about this. I didn't. This didn't occur to me even when I was writing the essay. I do talk about what Connolly said he did. Later, I realized when I mimicked that, what you have to do to look straight back in a car seat, his arm, your arm can easily come up to your chest here 
and your left thigh can easily be elevated to where it's just right next to your wrist. Where were his wounds? Ali was struck in the back. But if you believe what he said, he was doing at the time, facing the back. Where was his back? His back was facing the front of the car. He was hit in the back. Just he came through his back and then went through, I think, his right wrist, right? Left, left of his right uh, shoulder blade. No. Left, the entry was just left of his right shoulder blade, right at the shoulder blade. Exited below the right nipple. Hit the wrist. Now, when you see the film today, I'm glad you asked this because this is a crucial thing that was taken out of the film, and it's why I concentrate on that single frame of film. You see him in the, the existing Zapruder film. He's holding his hat in his right hand, and you see him turn to the right, but then you see him come around, and then there's a jerk in the film. And that was talked about by Lindahl Shaneyfeld the FBI's film analyst talks in his testimony. And if you look at Chaneyfeld's testimony in the Warren report, in the, the Warren volumes, uh, he tells what he saw in the film in two different ways. He describes it the way you see it now. He talks about the jerk. They asked him about the jerk. What do you mean by the jerk in the film? Uh, and, and then he, he describes what Connolly said. He describes what he saw, obviously, Shaneyfeld saw the original film before it was altered uh, because it went straight. One copy went straight to the FBI. So uh, so naturally, Shaneyfeld would have seen that copy. But it it came out in his testimony about uh, Connolly straightening back up and turning all the way to the left. Shaneyfeld actually says that. So that's in my essay. But the existing film today, holding his hat in his hand, you see it above the car window. Uh, and then uh, there's this at the at the point of frame two two seven. There's a a famous hat flip. There's a flip. I call it a fly swat. But you know what? It's a single frame of film. The existing film was judged to be eighteen point three frames per second. That's an eighteenth of a second. You try to do that. You try to do even a fly swat in an eighteenth of a. You can't do it. You cannot. It's too fast. So it's an obvious edit. That's where they edited the turn to the left. Uh, and Connolly getting, they had to take out Connolly getting shot because he was shot in the back from the front. Right. So it was so, Kennedy, right? Kennedy was at so least shot the whole, once or twice from the front, yeah. And that's a microcosm of the whole issue of the Zapruder film. They, you know, it's famously asked, even in research circles, um, why would they have to alter it? Because when you see Kennedy get shot, he's obviously shot from the front. He's like, you know, thrown back this way as if you take a baseball bat and hit somebody in the head back in that direction. Obviously, he was shot from the front. So why would they have to alter? Well, because there were worse things. They, they knew that they're, first of all, they didn't want to release the film. The film wasn't released for 12 years. Right. Uh, Did Robert Henry Lewis buy it or Time Life? Held on to it for a while. He's they did. They got Bonesman, it. Very suspicious. He and they his wife it. are pretty interesting characters. They're almost like the pains too. They're friends and all that stuff. C.D. Jackson was uh, working at Life Magazine at the time. He was uh, 
psychological warfare expert for Eisenhower. That's C.D. Jackson. Um, and he was working at Life magazine, and he coordinated the purchase of the film from Zapruder, who, who sold it to Life magazine the next day, Saturday morning. Um, and so they had it, had the rights to it that weekend. And uh, they took it back and started, you know, doing their thing with it. They, pu they published some frames out of order later, a week later. That's a whole. That's the whole story of that. Lots of. Me, have you ever heard of that Bill Hicks uh, bit that he does, where you become president and you actually see the real Zapruder film, or so you see from an angle? And you write in your book actually, and it ties into the kind of theme of your book about the Texas involvement in the murder, which is there's all kinds of sketchy things that happened around there. So Zapruder was the only person to really film it, and there should have been tons of media. But it was arranged in the parade route. A lot of things. The bubble roof came off, but also the media was put at the very back too, right? So they knew yeah. they didn't want to have somebody on site at this part of the, the route. This was the end of the route Kennedy was going off. This was the kind of final turn. Was the turn into Dealey Plaza, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you can get a book uh, called "Pictures of the Pain of the Pain." Pictures of the Pain. Um, by Trask, Richard Trask, T-R-A-S-K, which is the definitive book on all of the photography uh, of the Kennedy assassination. Still photos, films. He has chapters on the uh, network cameramen who were in one of the follow-up cars. But once again, they were used to being in a car right behind the president. They did this professionally. In this motorcade, there were several cars back. And you can get all the detail on where, what they were doing, what they did, where they were. Um, so it's after the shots, they heard the shots, sure. Uh, they saw the cars take off. But by the time they got to the, to the point where the shots were, where the president was shot, the cameramen even before they got there, they jumped out of the car and they saw people on the ground. They saw the Newman family on the ground on the famous grassy knoll area. And you can, there's famous pictures today of just bystanders took a picture of the cameraman filming the Newmans on the ground. And you can see that film. You can see the Newmans interviewed by the sixth floor museum talking about that, that event. Their kids, they had two, two boys who were there with them. They were protecting their family. They, they dived to the ground, as did a lot of people. Um, but you talk about the media coverage. You know, the, yeah, they just weren't, they weren't where they normally would have been. Uh, they, they could have photographed. You know, it was just, and then so Zapruder, Zapruder said in his uh, testimony, and I got this from, from Irwin too, Zapruder was very upset by the way the Warren Commission treated him. He said, they didn't ask me the right questions. Um, he, said he, he was very upset. He, he spent the rest of his life upset by the Warren Commission interview by David Bellin, I believe it was, yeah. And uh, he, he thought that he had seen it better. He had seen the assassination better than anyone because he was filming it through a telephoto lens. And that was enough of a shock, a trauma to him. Uh, but then to be treated so poorly by the Warren Commission, he he was 
very upset the rest of his life about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that he their family was traumatized, right? I mean, the whole situation, the, the sale and not seeing it, I mean. It's, now, uh, now you might ask, uh, did they see the altered film later? <laughs> but remember, not, not even, I mean, Zapruder had copies of it. The family had copies of it. I'm sure they watched it. Other people had the bootleg copies, secret people here and there. Um, I always wonder how much I should say uh, publicly about this. But let me just say that there are some known people. We know of some people who have first day copies, bootleg copies of that film. We're looking into it. That's why I'm so optimistic that someday we will see that film. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. And it would um, show that it was a shooting gallery, right? There's multiple bullets. There's more than three bullets. That's the thing. That's why they altered and the film. Bullets. Yeah. Multiple shots from multiple directions. You, you would see it in the film. It's obvious. Frame 227, they took out the shot to Kennedy. Of course you would have to take that out. Now, well, I could get into the, the technical side of how they could do that, but that, that may be getting into too much inside baseball. But they had, to, they had to solidify. They had to solidify Oswald as the lone killer. So you had Spectre. Yeah, that's the big picture. It was already known they were going to blame the whole thing on Oswald. That was their cover story. Uh, that was like a secondary uh, cover story. The original, if you've done, I think even in uh, James Douglas's book, um, JFK and the Unspeakable. He may talk about the plan, plan two, uh, which was to blame it on Castro and Khrushchev and then go straight into World War Three. Uh, use it as a as a reason to bomb Cuba and Russia. Uh, you know, it's incredible how dicey that time was super, not just the missile yeah. crisis, but just so many things going on. People wanted more action, Vietnam, Cuba. Uh, a lot of very radical people around LeMay, uh, surrounding Kennedy, just, uh, and Dulles, really. I think your book, you show so many of these Dulles things. And Dulles's experience with assassinations, that you could see somebody of that experience applying that experience to November 22nd, 1963. Because his first stuff went all the way back to World War II, right? Right. Uh, by the time of the assassination, Alan Dulles, who by that time was director of the CIA and had been for 10 years. Uh, well, no, he wasn't director anymore because Kennedy fired him after the six months after the Bay of Pigs. And didn't, let me just say this because I keep saying they fired him. Everybody says that he fired him. He arranged for him to retire. It was an arranged thing, but all the insiders knew what was really happening. And they offset. Anytime politicians make a deal that they don't want anybody to know about, even with foreign countries, they offset it by six months. You know, you'll go meet with the Saudi. You want lower oil prices, gas prices. You have to go beg the Saudis for the lower gas prices. You have no control over it. But then you offset any quid pro quo. You offset that by six months. That seems to be a standard SOP, a standard operating procedure. It was like six months after the Bay of Pigs that Dulles retired from the CIA. But everybody, including Dulles, knew that he was being fired. 
And um, but by that time, he was the world's expert. He's one of the top world's experts on assassinating heads of state. You couldn't find a more experienced guy doing that. He followed other assassinations, starting from uh, Archduke Ferdinand. Um, he studied those when he was coming up uh, through the ranks of the State Department. Um, Reinhard Heydrich, he was very close to the plotting of the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, the Nazi official who, you know, behind the, the 1C conference, which was the secret conference that started the conspiracy we now know as the Holocaust. He was the number two guy. So he would have been, if Hitler died, Reinhard would have been. Reinhard Heydrich, and he was assassinated. Yeah. Reinhard Heydrich, I talk about that in the book. Uh, my co-author, Walter Graf, who I co-authored my ballistics article on, uh, Walter was 40 years senior to me. He was in his uh, late 70s, early 80s when we were working together. But, and by the time of the assassination, Walter Graf was an expert on the Lincoln assassination. He had, he had devoted himself to learning about that. So he, he was already on the ground with knowledge of what to look for when Kennedy was shot. So he saw the conspiracy immediately with that. It wasn't till, um, the, until around the time that I was coming out as a researcher and publishing my first work on it at conferences that I met Walter Graff at a conference in Providence, Rhode Island in 1993. And um, he was shopping around this. He was, he had been a, a paralegal at one point. He, you know, he was, he was very knowledgeable. He, he, uh, he's a descendant of the Mayflower, uh, had a very successful life and career during World War II. He was, um, I, I give a little bio on him because I want to honor him for his genius and uh, coming up with the, the Einsteinian um, thought experiments that led to our ballistics article. And he was shopping around and he couldn't get anybody. At that point, he, he was too old. He was trying to learn um, an electric typewriter. This was 1993. He was trying to learn how to use an electric typewriter at the time when word processing had taken over everything. So he knew he wouldn't be able to write it. And I said, you know, you've got, you've got to write this. It's a brilliant analysis of the ballistics. And I knew that the only way it was going to get written was if I wrote it with him. I said, okay, Walter, just write me letters. Send me. He was a big letter writer. He would type his letters on his electric typewriter. Send me everything you know and think about this. And we will correspond. You know, the, the true sense of a correspondent, right? We will correspond and we'll work out the details and I will try to debunk your thoughts on this. And that's how we'll build this essay. And it's been called um, one of the best essays ever written on the assassination of George Michael Evica, who later became, our on the final version of it, George Michael Evica, the great uh, researcher who wrote uh, And We Are All Mortal, the name of his book. Um, he uh, he called it that one of the best, uh, one of the most important papers ever written. On it. He became our editor in that last version. Uh, I had already started rewriting it, and I was 
gratified to learn that the things he was suggesting needed to be done, I had already begun doing those things, but he made a lot of other great suggestions. And by that, by the time we published the final version in 2002, and you can find it online, it's called, um, uh, it's called, uh, uh, the gun the, that the didn't one, smoke. Gun that didn't smoke. Part the one, gun, two, three. At least in your book, it's like in multiple parts. Well, you know what? Yeah, you know, self-publishing. Uh, it, it's one essay. It was divided up into different sections anyway. But when uh, John Kellen, who had a an online magazine called Fair Play Magazine, he was uh, the first to publish it there, and he. Uh, in order to get it on in those days in the 90s didn't have a lot of a lot of memory online to publish like an, a long essay like that so he had four parts uh, with links to each four parts when joe 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 green who you interviewed a, a while back is the publisher of my book uh his his wife faith harper and he have a little uh, imprint called um uh, Say something real press. So Joe, uh, being the just a mom and pop situation, and Joe is the only one, you know, editing and compiling. I was setting him everything. I was doing as much proofreading and and editing as I could, and he was doing as much as he could. But uh, but isn't he, that kind of the story uh, of the JFK JFK assassination? As the technology got better, more analysis, more ability to to cross notes, more people able to communicate. The research gets better and builds and builds to this point where well, you would, it's hard you to think, believe that a assassin could do anything. Yeah, You would think uh, you don't see anything getting any better. Uh, you're hitting on some of my pet peeves research, current status of research. But uh, my, my group that we call the Center for Deep Political Research, which we want to be a think tank, proto think tank at this point. Uh, we want it to be a think tank for truth, and uh, you know, we're, uh, we have we we have we have had discussions. We know the value of doing this as a think tank because we have come up with ways of having an end game of bringing this to a closure. If you were to sum up where I am today after you know, my 30 years of research, it would be uh, my concentration. Uh, if I, in the last conferences I spoke at, I was pushing this idea that we need to get an end game here. Uh, we're all stuck. We're stuck in a comfort zone of educating. <laughs> and education is valuable. We need to educate the next generation. Uh, but then what are they going to do with their education? What did we do with ours? We use our education to teach the next generation. They're using it to teach the one after them and the one after them. And all we're doing is, it's like, we're like teaching everybody how to build skyscrapers, but nobody's building a skyscraper. You know, at some point you have to stop educating and somebody has to actually build it. So what, what we want to do at Center for Deep Political Research is have an arm of the think tank that comes up with ideas on how to push this forward. I see it as, as a dialogue. 
the assassination is a domino in the deep, whole deep politi- geopolitical world that is just about ready to fall. We've had the longest time. We've already solved the assassination. Uh, I don't bother with trying to, first of all, there was nothing to solve anyway. The Warren Commission volumes showed you the conspiracy. They knew they did. But the report, a few people would read the report. Nobody would read the 26 volumes. They know some of them. Right, that's uh, what Dola said. Dola said, that's what, that, let's turn off the video. Let's turn off the video. Maybe we'll get a better connection. Um, that's what Dola said. Is like nobody's going to read, so they probably intentionally made it uh, you know, long and onerous. And then they, like, I think you call in your book, they, they backtracked and show, you know, after it was done, they're like, yeah, I'm not really sure it could be done by one. Right. Guy. My, I say, the, the book starts out with my two long book essays, and then it ends with shorter essays, one of which is called The Guardian Knot Why 54 Years of Relations uh, Haven't Made a Difference. And that's where I talked about that, about the, the false mystery about how we've all been played in a you're trying to untie the knot when it can't be untied in any uh, you know common sense way uh, we have to stop playing the game they gave us a game to play and you know what even we may have the files we supposedly we're going to get all the files released December 15th Biden ordered them released and he said only withheld in the rarest of circumstances, and explain why they're being withheld. December 15th coming up, 2020. And we may get them, yeah, but then what? I've been saying for years, once we know the shoe size of every conspirator, a lot of people will be satisfied, they'll sit back, be satisfied. You know, the ones who got things right will congratulate themselves, the ones who got things wrong will you know, be relegated to obscurity. And and it'll be that. <laughs> Nobody will do anything about it because we've known enough since Garrison, since Jim Garrison's investigation, he solved the crime. He named the conspirators um, and showed the conspiracy. And then he tried to do something about it, but he got shut down. Um, and after that, we went back to books and mock trucks and documentaries and feature films and education. We went back to education because that's our comfort zone. We learn a lot about it ourselves, and it's actually it's not that hard to learn. Um, once you concentrate on it, you can learn it like anything, you know, like auto repair, whatever, uh, cooking. You can learn about it because I learn. I mean, it's not spoon fed to you, not taught in school. But the information just lift right under the surface. You can find the information because the, war, the the deep state put it out there for us to find, but only as a game, as a mystery to solve. And that's what we've been doing for 59 years. And we not have to stop that. We have to pursue. The investigation is over. We have to pursue um, the shooting. Um, um, Garrison tried. Um, and we know now the information the information existed that would have convicted Clay Shaw as his alias Clay Bertrand as one of the conspirators. That's the way you do a conspiracy. Even if you find a low-level person, 
they are as guilty as the shooters and the masterminds. And you, you, you try to get a little person and then work your way up, you know, you grant immunity, whatever, but they were not able to, uh, because, you know, there were legal problems with the evidence of the alias Clay Bertrand as Clay Shaw and the I think rightly didn't allow that. But there were other obstructions. You know, Ronald Reagan was governor of California that would prevent um, extradition to some people that um, Garrison wanted to get to. There was obstruction big time. The CIA obstructed his investigation. And so he uh, wasn't able to convict Clay Shaw, but he did convince the jury and the judge that it was a conspiracy. Unfortunately, that was not the case. The case was that Clay Shaw was a conspirator. So the jury found him not guilty. But you know um, what he did is he pushed all that information forward. He tried those people. So, you know, he set a watermark, so to speak, about all that information. So he did a lot yes. of good work in that regard. So people yes. can build. And that's kind of like the way this community of JFK research is, is there were early ones, people were on it from the beginning, Mark Lane, people you mentioned. There's a lot in your book. You talk about the Rambler, the Carcano rifle. There's all kinds of problems uh, that that just pile up once you really start researching the JFK. But Richard, we are at the hour mark. Is there anything you'd like to add, or anything I meant missed before we wrap it up? Well, able to get to it. You were touching on there. Um, I found well, the what internet connection to be isn't there. very good. That's one of the problems. So I mean, okay. The, yeah, there's a lot. You have tons of information, tons of detail, and yeah. really fascinating. I learned a lot about certain aspects and ex expanded my understanding of this. And I think you make good points. And I think Tatro, too, says it couldn't have just been a CIA operation. They had to have help on the ground. And there's tons of connections between Dulles and all these people and LBJ and his squad and these corporate yeah. uh, attachments. Really fascinating. Yeah, uh, a caveat, it was not saying it was not CIA. It was saying it was CIA, the network of collaborators. That's the way the CIA works. That's all Petro is saying. Gotcha. And again, uh, thank you so much for your time. Author's name is Richard Bartholomew. Title of the book is The Deep State in the Heart of Texas, The Texas Connections to the Kennedy Assassination. And I will put a link to the book in the show notes. So thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Stay there.